Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Discussing some great books and our favourite reads. And we'll be talking to Mike Brown, the publisher of Sherlock Holmes. Design covers for a bit of book sales. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Every week, we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books and um, from latest bestsellers to our um, favourite classics because great books aren't just on the bestseller list. So if you look reading or you just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, um, this is the programme for you. Uh, as always, we've got a fun-filled hour for you today. We've got uh, publisher Mike Bryan in the studio uh, from Baker Street Press. He'll be telling us all about the beautiful series of Sherlock Holmes books. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Heather. Thanks for having me on the show. And of course, Julian. Good morning, Julian. I've forgotten yeah. to say hello to you. <laughs> yes, good morning. Here's me waking in the wings. Know, Julian, and, uh... we can't hear you. Oh. Um... Let me see. What is going um, on? Hello, um, I can, I, I'm, I can hear you. You have quite, got him. Okay, I can hear you. right. It sounds as though we're uh, good and ready to go. I reckon. Absolutely. Maybe the volume could be put up a bit. I have no idea. We we'll um, have to get our te- uh, technical expert on that. So. Um, we, as I say, we've got Mike Bryan joining us today, Nell's favourite Sherlock Holmes stories and the story behind its success. And also we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news for you. So let's start with a quick roundup of what book stories have been in the news recently. Uh, can, you, can you hear me quite clearly? Hello. Hi, Jules. Yeah, I can hear you perfectly well, so that sounds good Oh, to me. excellent, good. I was a bit uh, bit sort of panicky there um, because I, I, I mic's up here in my studio, but that's fine. Well, there's a little bit of a snippet here, uh, and it'll be of interest. There's a literary connection, but also uh, people who've got the rather deep uh, pockets because the house that Charles Dickens stayed in during the summer social season in 1861 is up for sale. Now, it's a very grand house. It's number three, Hanover Terrace, and it's overlooking Regent's Park. Now, Dickens often brought his daughter Mary and his son Francis to the property, which he described as really delightful. Now, it's a five-story property, and it's now on the market for um, the small price of £22.6 million. Now, it's a grade one listed building, and it remains largely unchanged since Dickens Day, although I must admit, I think he'd be rather puzzled and wouldn't recognise the gym equipment that's actually in the Muse property, which is linked to the house. 
Gosh, he must have been a really well-paid author to be able to afford a house that's 22, 22 million today. That's incredible. Exactly. Uh, really. Absolutely. And then, then when you think when uh, his uh, his other properties that he'd have down at the coast, and, and then he uh, had his house in Rochester as well. Um, yeah, really well-paid. Very well-paid author. He was the J.K. Rowling of his day, I guess. I think he was. Absolutely was. Okay, so fans of Jane Austen can rest easy. A few months ago, we reported the news that the setting for a home in the village of Chawton might be blighted by 22,000 solar panels. This planning quest has now been withdrawn. The proposed site for the panels was a stone's throw from Chawton House, where Austen's brother lived and she often visited. Another author, and local to the site, Alan Titchmarsh, was one of the vocal supporters of the plan to refuse planning permission, claiming it would have destroyed the ambience and scenery that Austen would have known and destroyed the bucolic atmosphere for lovers of her work visiting the site. I don't know what that says about um, green energy, though. Mm, well, yes, very true. But uh, but I should imagine that uh, all of those panels probably would look rather ghastly. Yes. Well, I've got a, a, a piece of news here. It's official. TikTok helps boost the sale of books. Uh, the Publishers Association annual report has just come out, uh, and it uh, it shows that uh, there was, uh, has been a healthy increase in sales um, income for publishers, despite the disruptions to the global supply chain, and also the months and months and months when bookshops were closed. Now, the report singled out TikTok as being especially helpful um, with uh, with their influences, recommending new and old titles in video clips, which then went viral during the pandemic. Now, the recommendations have reactivated sales of titles which have been lying dormant on shelves for years, particularly one young adult fiction um genre was the beneficiary and one book Kane's jawbone which is a murder mystery published in 1934 and written by cryptic crossword inventor edward powis mathers was described as an almost impossibly difficult literary puzzle and it was one of the beneficiaries of this type of promotion now stephen um lotinga who's the chief executive of the pa um told um i newspaper that tiktok is bringing a new generation of enthusiastic readers back into stores and it's breathe new life into a lot of backlist titles and going back to uh, um kane's jawbone he described that the the published the book when it was published uh, all the pages were in the wrong order so people have to go through um, putting it together and what these influence have done they uh, have put videos uh, of themselves trying to piece the mystery together and it's selling thousands of copies however heather i think you and i are something of influencers because we like to bring up old titles that have long been forgotten <laughs> absolutely <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's nothing like a good old title. Exactly. <laughs> but this Kane's Jawbones, that sounds fantastic. And we have talked about that in the past, haven't we? We have, we have. So in the same report, the industry warned that more independent bookshops that have already reporting reduced customer spending as the cost of living crisis bites could disappear from the high street as Amazon extends its dominance. In a submission to ministers considering powers that will be given to the new digital markets tax, task force, which is tasked with clamping down on anti-competitive behaviour by technical giants, the Publishers Association said that Amazon had established a monopoly of the digital and audio book markets and an enormous share of the physical book market, 
Publishers can't afford not to trade with Amazon. And all I can say is we just need to support our independent books. Well, we do, um, uh, because it's, it's, you know, it's like anything, you know, uh, if you don't use it, you lose it. Uh, and that would be a sad thing. Um, it really would. But yes, so, you know, the little bookshop in Cookham, get out there and support it. Absolutely. Now, there's another little bit of a snippet, and this is um, to do with Charlotte Bronte. Um, and it's a tiny book of verse that she wrote as a teenager. And it went up for sale in New York last week and sold for $1.25 million. And it'll be returning to her childhood home, which is really good news. Now, it's called A Book of Rhymes, and it was written when she was 13 years old. And it's understood she wrote it in collaboration with her, her brother, uh, Bramwell. Now, the writing inside is absolutely tiny. It's microscopic and it fills the pages with poems, which she described, Charlotte described as uh, attempts at rhyming of an inferior nature. It must be acknowledged, but they are nevertheless my best, which is really rather sweet. Now, the book uh, of verse is is small. It's no larger than a playing card. uh, And it was last seen in public in 1916 um, when it was already in the United States of America. Uh, And last week it went on display again at the New York International Antiquarian Book Fair. And other items that were displayed included the South African government document bearing the fingerprints of Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, That's being offered. And uh, also a first edition of The Great Gatsby is being offered as well. I wonder what the fingerprints of Mahatma Gandhi uh, was doing on a document. I mean, was was he printed it or because he could well, it obviously? Yeah, well, but well, yes, it was an educated man. Um, so unless basically it was when he was um, a lawyer in South Africa, maybe he had some paper and he and been eating a piece of buttered toast and he put his thumbprint on it and that's what it might be by accident. Who knows? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> now, from the obituary desk this week, we remember Marilyn Marlin who died at 86 recently after having never retired. Is that a good thing or not? I don't know. She was the MD of the great and established Methuen Children's Books for 18 years and transformed the company into one of the most successful and forward-looking publishers of children's books. Now, Methuen was always a great children's publisher. They had the estates of Kenneth Graham, who's obviously the Wind in the Willows books were written and based around Cookham. And also the estate of A.A. Milne with his Winnie the Pooh books. But when um, when Marilyn Marlin came in, she published the early books by TV presenters like Fluella Benjamin and the Jamaican poet James Berry. And she was also responsible for including War Horse by Michael Morpurgo in Methuen's new magnet paperback list. So much to the dismay of her authors, the children's company was folded into the Methuen General Division. So Marilyn Marlin just decided to up sticks and she started her own imprint with Andre Deutsch, focusing on contemporary situations like single parent families with no spare cash, unemployment and high rise living, which were all treated with warmth and humour. And I think the reason why she didn't uh, retire was she also became a literary agent, working closely with authors and illustrators. And as we all know, literary agents just read books and go for lunch. They do. Yes. But in, interesting, like isn't it, day. that she obviously seemed to be ahead of her time because all of those areas that she, she was encouraging to publish, it's very appropriate for today, isn't it? You know, with people with the, with the uh, uh, you know, struggling to pay bills and so forth. And Yes, absolutely. Mm. Very, uh, very relevant. So you are listening to Turning Pages 
And we're joined in the studio today by publisher Mike Bryan, who runs Baker Street Press and has just published a superb series of gift editions of Sherlock Holmes. So, Mike, welcome. Uh, Thanks. Uh, Nice to be on the show again. And thank you for helping out earlier on when I was having technical issues. <laughs> no problem. Are we all all right? Has uh, the local Sherlock Holmes worked his magic and worked out uh, what the problem, diagnosed the problem and uh, Do you know, worked out? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> okay. Sherlock Holmes has been particularly disappointing this morning no, it's in not resolving it's, this issue. It's obviously a three-pipe problem, so <laughs> yeah. it, hopefully it will get resolved before 12 o'clock. I think it's probably Moriarty's in the mix somewhere there (laughs) with his dastardly tricks. I think you're right. (laughs) Wasn't he in the Goon Show as well? (laughs) Probably (laughs) so, yes. (laughs) We've probably got the wrong Moriarty. Anyway, thank you for having me on the show. (laughs) So, the company's called the Baker Street Press, so obviously you're publishing Sherlock Holmes. So you were obviously destined to publish these books, but is there a link? Uh, yeah, I, I think there is. Um, I got, I've, I've always been in publishing, as you know. I, I used to work for Penguin Books, and particularly I uh, uh, did quite a bit of work with Penguin Classics. Um, so uh, I've, I've always been a, a bibliophile. And, um, and then I was doing some work a few years ago uh, with Quirkus, who had um, their offices in Baker Street. And we were talking about a classics list. Um, and it came to... Uh, me that uh, the Baker Street Press would be a great name for a publisher. Uh, and I double-checked, uh, uh, imagining that um, uh, the name would have been taken years and years ago. But it wasn't. It was free. So um, so I, uh, I created the Baker Street Press. And as you quite rightly pointed out, the, the, the only destination for Baker Street is to publish Sherlock Holmes. Yes, I think you're obviously a member of the Baker Street Irregulars at some well, times. Definitely. Irregular most of the time, it has to be said. <laughs> so tell me about this series of books. Yes, so um, uh, I, I mentioned I'm, I'm a bibliophile and I love I love going into bookshops. There's, there's no doubt about that and buying new books. But I also love going into antiquarian books, um, second-hand bookshops. That's always mm-hmm. uh, been a delight of mine. And... Um, I was, uh, and I'm very lucky to have a few first edition Sherlock Holmes books. But it has to be said, apart apart from um, Hand of the Baskervilles, the majority of the covers on the early Sherlock Holmes were a bit disappointing. Uh, They're very plain. And um, so uh, I was delighted to find some editions from the 1920s, uh, which have the most striking and brilliant unified covers um and those have inspired the new hardback editions that we've done of the complete nine uh titles um uh they're they're a bit more colorful than the original ones and they've got some nice typographic detail and we have gone through every edition of sherlock holmes including the early magazine uh editions to make sure that the text is the most precise text and how Conan Doyle actually wanted it. Um, but they're beautiful. They're, they're, uh, they've got um, lovely uh, ri- uh, ribbon heads and um, ribbon bookmarks. And um, they, are, they are beautiful editions. So we, won't, we are going to actually talk about how important design is later on in the show. Great. Um, so who are the books aimed at? Well, um, 
Well, they're, obviously they're aimed at anybody who has an interest in um, Sherlock, which is a vast amount of people, because um, I don't know if you know this, but um, 221 Baker Street, uh, which is the fictional um, uh, quarters of uh, Sherlock Holmes, still gets post. Wow. So Sherlock Holmes still gets post from people all the way around the world saying, can you solve this problem for me? So, it, so everybody uh, loves Sherlock Holmes. But apart from that... Um, my uh, my wife has an, a very uh, strong view about presents, and she oh, always yes. she always feels that uh, buying for men is a really difficult thing. Oh, I to can do. understand that. Yeah, uh, so difficult that quite often she just intercepts stuff that I buy, uh, and um, and gives that uh, and says you can have that for your birthday. Oh, there's a good idea. I might try that. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> So I, I don't think blokes are very difficult to buy for at all, and um, these would be um, absolutely brilliant for um, any man on the planet. Uh, and the great thing about them, there's nine of them, so you could hit birthday, Father's Day, that's coming up, by the way, uh, and um, and Christmas for the next three years. That'd be <laughs> fantastic. I think, you, I think you're right. They they are a beautiful gift edition, aren't They're they? a gift edition. They, yeah. are, they are a gift. They're not necessarily that sort of paperback that you're going to sort of stick in your holiday bag that sort of thing these are these are definitely destined for um very smart bookshelves because they they're they're very gorgeous but also to read because they're, they're lovely oh, yeah. yeah yeah and we've we, we've purposely made the um the type very readable i mean lots of editions of sherlock hopes they are just unreadable because they're too tight and badly um badly set but uh, these are just superbly done we wanted to do it in Baskerville, uh, but it didn't quite oh. work. It, it it wasn't as readable as it could have been. So um, that is a shame. Yeah, so, that, so. so you're talking about Father's Day coming up. Oh yeah, great great gift. But I also understand there's a Sherlock Holmes Day. Indeed, there is. So Arthur Conan Doyle uh, was born on the 22nd of May. Right. Uh, actually, only a few days after I was born, um, and uh, that is. Uh, International Sherlock Holmes Day, so uh, fabulous. There's a there's there's a um, a, a reason for putting on a deer stalker and smoking a pipe, and rushing out to a bookshop and buying Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Indeed, that'd be good. So, what is it? Do you think about Sherlock Holmes? There's such a p- an appeal even today. Um, well, he's very clever, isn't he? I mean, he 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 um, is wondrously clever, and he's a real. Uh, polymath and polyglot, um, and uh, let's not let's not forget that it is a duo as well because there's uh, Doctor James Watson, uh, so we kind of like both of them. And Watson is there really, I think, for Holmes to explain how clever he is, mm. um, which is good. But that's kind of also true of Conan Doyle himself because Conan Doyle, as we as, as uh, I guess lots of people know, was actually a doctor. Um, uh, which is where he got um, a lot of the ideas for um, diagnosis. Uh, he based Sherlock Holmes on uh, Dr. Bell, who was one of his teachers, Joseph Bell, one of his teachers at Edinburgh University, yes, yes. who was one of the first people uh, to use diagnosis uh, as um, as a, a way of treating people or understanding what issues and problems were. So Conan Doyle sort of picked up on that, which is why he's sort of using sort of his proficiency of observation in yeah. his uh, in his case solving. Yeah, rather stunningly, I went to the dentist yesterday, uh-huh. and um, the hygienist said to me, um, um, 
So uh, what do you do for a living? I thought, well, that's a strange question. Why do you need to know that? So I said, no, why, uh, why are you doing that? And it was diagnostic. Um, she said, well, actually, I had somebody recently come in and they worked at the Mars factory in Slough. <laughs> And their teeth were terrible because of all the sugar. So, uh, so Was she suggesting you had a job in the Mars factory? <laughs> no, but I think knowing that I was a publisher and you mentioned long publishing lunches, she might have been con- concerned about my general health. But that's kind of interesting that we use diagnosis in, in um, lot, lots in everything. of... In everything that, yes. that, that we do. Um, so I think that's that's fascinating about it. But I, uh, And Conan Doyle, you, to me in my mind, Sherlock Holmes and Conan Doyle just mix yeah. up. I've, I've got to say that there's a great book called called uh, um, The Man Who Would Be Sherlock yeah. by Christopher Stanford. I don't know if you've read it, but it looks at how Conan Doyle was involved in dozens of real-life cases. So he actually did sort of practice what Sherlock Holmes preached, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, and, and uh, Julian Barnes wrote the book Arthur and George, oh. which is which is a novelisation of an actual case that Sherlock Holmes, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle was involved in. He was Arthur Doyle, by the way, um, Conan was his middle name, along, oh, right. with, uh, along with Ignatius. Um, but um, we've got we've come to like calling him Conan Doyle as a, as a sort of hyphenated surname. Yeah, that's strange, not, isn't it? Yeah. It is. yeah. I think I'm on the real. My personal view of why we all like um, uh, Sherlock Holmes is because Watson is in awe of him. Yes. And we read the books through Watson's eyes, so it can't help but us feel that sort of sense of admiration I suppose as we're reading the book yeah so I think if um, I think that's true and I think if I met Conan Doyle today I'd definitely invite him to the, the um, dinner party um, I would be in awe of him because I did you know that he used to play for Portsmouth football team he was he was the goalkeeper for Portsmouth football no. team which is kind of amazing isn't it uh, and he also played cricket he, right. he played 10 matches for the MCC so that's first class cricket um, he only took one wicket as a bowler for the MCC, but that wicket was W.G. Grace. <laughs> so how fantastic is that? And he was, uh, Conan Doyle was so pleased about it, he wrote a poem about it, which is just, uh, you know, how I took the wicket of uh, W.G. Grace, which is fantastic. But he was also a boxer, a top billiards player, um, uh, and uh, he spoke German, he was a complete polyglot, who just the most amazing person definitely somebody to have at your um uh, dinner party brilliant we're talking to mike bryan publisher of a beautiful series of sherlock holmes books by baker street press and uh this program today is all about sherlock holmes i suppose so julian tell me about the publication of the original books well, it was very interesting. The Sherlock Holmes first makes his appearance in 1887 in a study uh, in, in Scarlet, um, which was the first of um, four Sherlock Holmes uh, novels, and then 56 short stories, uh, which were about Holmes and Dr. Watson. Now, initially, um, Doyle um, struggled to find a publisher, um, and his first work featuring um, Holmes and Watson, which was the study in, in Scarlet, was written in just three weeks when he's 27 years old. And he was actually accepted for publication by the venerable company Ward Lock and Company uh, on the 20th of November in 1886. And they paid Doyle £25, um, which was equivalent um, to about £2,900 in exchange for all rights to the story. Now, the the, the piece appeared a year later in uh, Beaton's Christmas Annual, pardon me, 
and received very good reviews. The sequel um, to A Study in Scarlet was commissioned and The Sign of Four appeared in Lippincott's magazine in February 1890 under agreement with Wardlock Company. Now, Doyle felt grievously exploited by uh, Wardlock um, because he was uh, a new author and just in the in the publishing world. And so um, with a bit of umbrage, he left them and his stories were then published in the Strand magazine. And then in November 19, um, 1891, he is he was already thinking of writing off Sherlock Holmes so he could spend more time writing his other books. So he wrote to his mother, um, thinking, innocently telling her um, of his plan, and she was absolutely horrified. She thought this was an awful, outrageous thing he could do. So in an attempt to deflect demand, he came up with this idea that he was just going to ask ridiculous amounts of money for his books, and he thought the publishers would say, oh, well, forget it. Well, to his, to his dismay, they all coughed up, and so he had to start writing all of these, and they were willing to pay him a lot of money. And as a result, he became one of the best-paid authors of his day. But, as we are about to hear, he wasn't afraid of trying to kill off um, Sherlock Holmes. So let's listen to a piece from The Final Problem. The Final Problem. It was the sight of that alpine stock which turned me cold and sick. He had not gone to Rosenlau then. He had remained on that three-foot path with sheer wall on one side and sheer drop on the other until his enemy had overtaken him. The young Swiss had gone too. He had probably been in the pay of Moriarty and had left the two men together. And then what had happened? Who was to tell us what had happened then? I stood for a minute or two to collect myself, for I was dazed with the horror of the thing. Then I began to think of Holmes's own methods, and to try to practice them in reading this tragedy. It was, alas, only too easy to do. During our conversation we had not gone to the end of the path, and the alpine stock marked the place where we had stood. The blackish soil is kept for ever soft by the incessant drift of spray, and a bird would leave its tread upon it. Two lines of footmarks were clearly marked along the farther end of the path, both leading away from me. There were none returning. A few yards from the end, the soil was all ploughed up into a patch of mud, and the branches and ferns which fringed the chasm were torn and bedraggled. I lay upon my face and peered over with the spray spouting up all around me. It had darkened since I left, and now I could only see here and there the glistening of moisture upon the black walls, and far away down at the end of the shaft the gleam of the broken water. I shouted, but only the same half-human cry of the fall was borne back to my ears. But it was destined that I should, after all, have a last word of greeting from my friend and comrade. I have said that his alpine stock had been left leaning against a rock which jutted on to the path. From the top of this boulder the gleam of something bright caught my eye, and raising my hand I found that it came from the silver cigarette case which he used to carry. As I took it up a small square of paper upon which it had lain fluttered down on to the ground. Unfolding it I found that it consisted of three pages torn from his notebook and addressed to me. It was characteristic of the man that the direction was as precise and the writing as firm and clear as though it had been written in his study. My dear Watson, it said, 
I write these few lines through the courtesy of Mr. Moriarty, who awaits my convenience for the final discussion of those questions which lie between us. He has been giving me a sketch of the methods by which he avoided the English police and kept himself informed of our movements. They certainly confirm the very high opinion which I had formed of his abilities. I am pleased to think that I shall be able to free society from any further effects of his presence, though I fear that it is at a cost which will give pain to my friends, and especially, my dear Watson, to you. I have already explained to you, however, that my career had in any case reached its crisis, and that no possible conclusion to it could be more congenial to me than this. Indeed, if I may make a full confession to you, I was quite convinced that the letter from Myringen was a hoax, and I allowed you to depart on that errand under the persuasion that some development of this sort would follow. Tell Inspector Patterson that the papers which he needs to convict the gang are in pigeonhole M, done up in a blue envelope and inscribed Moriarty. I made every disposition of my property before leaving England, and handed it to my brother Mycroft. Pray give my greetings to Mrs. Watson, and believe me to be, my dear fellow, very sincerely yours, Sherlock Holmes. A few words may suffice to tell the little that remains. An examination by experts leaves little doubt that a personal contest between the two men ended, as it could hardly fail to end in such a situation, in their reeling over, locked in each other's arms. Any attempt at recovering the bodies was absolutely hopeless, and there, deep down in that dreadful cauldron of swirling water and seething foam, were lie for all time the most dangerous criminal and the foremost champion of the law of their generation. The Swiss youth was never found again, and there can be no doubt that he was one of the numerous agents whom Moriarty kept in his employ. As to the gang, it will be written within the memory of the public how completely the evidence which Holmes had accumulated exposed their organisation, and how heavily the hand of the dead man weighed upon them. Of their terrible chief, few details came out during the proceedings, and if I have now been compelled to make a clear statement of his career, it is due to those injudicious champions who have endeavoured to clear his memory by attacks upon him who I shall ever regard as the best and the wisest man whom I have ever known. Now, as you can imagine, distressed readers wrote anguished letters to the Strand magazine. And the Strand magazine suffered such a terrible blow. 20,000 people cancelled their subscriptions to the magazine in protest. <laughs> Not a surprise. Not a surprise. <laughs> anyway, after resisting public pressure, uh, Conan Doyle wrote The Hound of the Baskervilles eight years later. And although it was implicit setting was before Holmes's death. So that's sort of how he got round that. And then uh, the following year, Conan Doyle wrote The Adventure of the Empty House, where Holmes reappears and explaining to a stunned Watson that he'd faked his death to fool his enemies. <laughs> and in his last bow, the reader is told, which is the final story, the reader is told that Holmes has retired to a small farm on the Sussex Downs and taken up beekeeping as his primary occupation. Hmm. So, uh, Ken Doyle has written other books, hasn't he, uh, Mike? Uh, yeah, he has. He was he was a very uh, prolific writer. 
Um, and uh, some of them are absolutely brilliant. Um, he did, of course, write the Brigadier Gerard books. There are two of them, The Adventures of Brigadier Gerard uh, and uh, The Further Adventures of uh, Brigadier Gerard. And they're about a Napoleonic... Um, officer in the French army. A bit like Bernard Cornwell's Sharp sort of thing. Yeah, kind of, but they're they're very funny uh, as well. Um, A bit of the Flashman that George MacDonald raises. They are definitely Flashmen. So uh, Brigadier Gerard is always boasting about his uh, adventures. Uh, uh, MacDonald Fraser must have taken Flashman from from Brigadier Gerard. So uh, he's always boasting, uh, but actually you can read between the lines that he is a real coward uh, and they are... um, they are very amusing and and very brilliant. That sounds great. Uh, but lots of um, uh, lots of uh, literary types think that uh, Conan Doyle's books on the Hundred Years' War, his historic books, are his best, and that's uh, the White Company and Sir Nigel, uh, and they're all about. Um, archers fighting in uh, Agincourt and Cressy and places like that. And, I've got to uh, say Ben and Cornwall's, Cornwall's covered that as well, Ash. I know, I know. so nothing's new, is Nothing it? Nothing is new. Uh, he was a genius at that. And, of course, he wrote The Lost World, which is uh, a, um, a sort of dinosaur-type um, novel as well. Yes. So how will Baker Street Press d- d- develop from here? Are you going to follow the sort of Conan Doyle route? Or are you just going to expand elsewhere? Uh, well, um, we will continue to do classics and I'd love to do some Conan Doyle, uh, I'd love to do the Brigadier Gerards, uh, they would be great uh, I'd also like to do some more of what I would call dangerous books for boys uh, I'd like to do some John Buchan and uh, H. Ryder Haggard um, so that's all That's all on the list um, but I think our next foray into uh, publishing a set of books will actually be Jane Austen uh, you mentioned Chawton House early, earlier on, uh, which is just a beautiful place. I'm so glad those um, uh, solar panels solar panels are not going have up been there. refused. Yeah, no, yes. that would be awful. Uh, yeah, so there are some historically. There's some absolutely beautiful editions of um, of Jane Austen's books, and um, that's going to be our next uh, our next line, and they'll be coming out. Probably early next year. Fantastic, fantastic. You're listening to Turning Pages on River Radio, providing the the proof that great books aren't just on the bestseller list. The programme is broadcast every Wednesday between 11 and 12 and repeated on Saturday afternoons between 2 and 3. And if you want to catch up on any past programmes you've missed, then you can listen again directly from the website, which is river.radio. And Turning Pages is also available as a podcast. We just need to search for Turning Pages on River Radio Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Coming up in the show, we'll be discussing our favourite Sherlock Holmes stories and our top picks at the Cookham Festival. But first, we've Mike Bryan in the studio, joining Julian and I. And he has spent a lifetime in the publishing world. He's a publisher of a beautiful series of Sherlock Holmes books that we've been talking about earlier on. So, Mike, I just want to explore with you the importance of design in books now. When I go into a bookshop, many now have beautifully designed series of books. So what to you makes a beautifully designed book? 
Uh, well, they often say don't um, judge a book by its cover, but actually the truth of the matter is most of us do. I certainly do. Uh, and publishers spend a fortune on uh, trying to make the books look as glorious and wonderful as possible, um, which is kind of understandable. Although sometimes not so under- understandable because lots of bookshops only put the books uh, spying on on the shelf, so you never actually see that beautiful yes. cover to make, uh, uh, make you want to buy it. That's why those tables in Wallstones and, and bookshops are so important when you see that cover um, uh, face up so you can you can really uh, see it and make a, uh, a decision about it. See, what I love about the books, the Sherlock Holmes books that you've got here, is the, the end papers. So when you open the book... Yes. Uh, so it's not just the cover, it's actually when you open the book, you've yeah. got that great design inside. Well, I think it's all, it's, it's always worth going that extra mile, isn't it? So we, we've got beautiful end papers, and actually, if you take the dust jacket off, um, you also uh, can see that some amazing design on the, uh, the actual hardcover of the book. And it's just going that extra mile, I think, is kind of important. Yeah, so in, you've got the, the bookmark as well. The silk bookmark. Um, but actually, they are, they're all based on the original um covers of the 1920s um incidentally um uh, jill's kind of alluded to it that um conan doyle actually moved around a bit so the books were not necessarily all published by the same publisher excuse me which means that um in the early editions there wasn't a a great continuity of the the jacket um designs Uh, but in the 20s we'd almost got there although there was one book was published by a different publisher. Uh, so what we've done is brought that all together so there's a real continuity to it, um, which is fantastic. And and we've colour-coordinated it all, so you get this lovely uh, shades of uh, colours going through each edition. Um, they are... Um, uh, there are work. It's the art of the book, um, and the book is art. It is indeed. Uh, Julian, do you think a beautifully designed book affects your reading enjoyment? Um, yes, I think it does. I mean, and, and I'd uh, agree um, with Mike. You know, when, when we say you, we do judge uh, books by their covers, I mean, for example, that's just sprung to mind is um, <clears throat> they're, they're quite old editions now. Uh, editions now, but when I bought the Evelyn Wars uh, novels, Penguin uh, published them with really nice stylized Art Deco jackets, oh, which are really good and make made really appealing. And you just, oh yeah, I'd, I'd really like to to read that. Um, uh, and, and and I think it is important. And one thing about um, jacket design, certainly for paperbacks here, over here in, 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 in Great Britain, we do spend a lot of time money designing jackets. Whereas in America, they actually put quite uh, what I think are poor jackets because the, the mentality is different in America. People buy a paperback to throw them away and read them, throw them away. Whereas we're <clears throat> collectors by nature. So... <clears throat> Pardon me, our publishers do a, a super a superb package of design to go with the appropriate title. Ah, so you think our designs might be better oh, than uh, the definitely, Americans? Definitely. I've got to say, I don't like those yellow, um, you know, the, the sort of the edges of the yes. paperback, where in America they often go yellow. So a lot of those sort of old, hard-boiled um, mm. thrillers often have those yellow covers. Mm. And I didn't like those at all. No, there was a reason for it. Though. Oh, what was that? Well, that, that was because um, with paperbacks went into racks and quite often they were in sunny areas, so they would get discoloured. Oh. And it was a way, of, they thought, of pro- prolonging the life of the display of a, of a paperback. Well, I suppose that makes sense, doesn't it? Because the dust... Of a, on a white mm. paperback would be picked up. No, it, so it does make sense, but I'm with you, I, I don't really mm. like it. 
Although, having said that, there is a big trend and fashion at the moment to do coloured edges for books. There's lots of hardcovers and paperbacks um, that are sort of red or, or yes. black. And, uh, Actually, that seem- yes. That seems to be a thing at the moment. So Sebastian de Cassel has got this great uh, edition there. It's sort of young adult um, fantasy uh, fantasy edition called Spell uh, Spell. Slinger. Spellslinger. Thank you for reminding me. Spellslinger. And their jackets, each one, there's a series of six and each one's a different colour. And then the colour goes over the end pages as well. So it does look very smart. And with some publishers where they do very smart hardback editions, um, you'll often find they've done um, gilt edging um, yes. on, on, on the on the pages <clears throat> yeah so going back we were talking about dirty uh bookshelves yeah. so presumably the dust jacket was designed mike for uh for stopping the dirt uh it was and uh it, very interestingly it's a very well-known person that invented the dust uh-huh. jacket or dust wrapper uh it was lewis carroll charles, no. charles lutwidge dodgson uh, was so concerned. He was he was very precise about his his uh, his book. So precise that he wasn't happy with the first printing of Alice in Wonderland. Uh, so made the uh, Macmillan uh, reprint it, uh, and he sent the first printing off to the states because he thought it was okay to sell that to Americans, <laughs> uh, even though he wasn't happy about uh, it. But they've now got the most expensive first edition yes yeah unfortunately that meant all the first editions actually went to the states which is uh, a bit irritating but uh he invented the dust jacket because he w- he wanted uh his books to look pristine um not that they were designed dust jackets at the time but he invented the concept of the uh, the dust racket jacket fantastic or, or dust wrapper yeah as it's, uh, sometimes called so i always sort of think the 50s and 60s was an era of great a great design. Yeah, I, I said before I, I love going into second-hand bookshops and I'm always drawn to um, the thrillers and um, historical books of the 1950s and 60s. Um, uh, and uh, I, I've got a couple of really uh, favourite jacket designers one is val biro who i think you talked about on a show quite recently because sadly he died uh, not so long ago um and he did all the covers for the hornblowers and um uh, the 1950s stroke 60s jackets for hornblowers are just fantastic and val biro um designed all of those and um they they look great it's worth it's worth looking them out uh if you can see them it's interesting we called valbiro valbiro and a biro a biro and a biro a biro i don't know it is the same name uh so i don't know why that's that's the case uh but the other uh great designer of course was richard chopping um uh, and i know julian is a big fan of james that's bond ian fleming mm. uh, covers uh, yeah so those yeah. those amazing ian fleming uh, covers of the the 60s um by richard chopping are just uh, spectacular they are absolutely iconic um so there there was and you you will find lots of uh, other books that were published by uh, michael joseph and um hamish hamilton around that era that uh, that have those fantastic jackets on them and i don't suppose we can really talk about design in books without mentioning the original penguins, those sort of orange and green and blue traditional penguins that you see all over the place. Yeah, well, that's another iconic image, isn't it? And you see it in lots of uh, merchandise now, or merch as they call it in the States. Um, uh, and that is very iconic. Um, uh, Alan Lane was very um, 
uh, also particular. It's interesting all these particular people about uh, about publishing uh, and printing. Uh, and um, uh, he liked that design. He didn't want to move away from that design. And actually, in the fifties, uh, he was very keen on not moving to the modern illustrated uh, look. Um, but uh, eventually they had to. Um, Although Penguin does do a few of the uh, yeah. traditional designs even today, yeah. don't uh, they? Well, uh, actually interesting, on, on their paperback Sherlock Holmes, they have that sort of uh, original orange, yes. origin. Uh, uh. Yeah. So looking today at modern day jackets, um, we've got, I mean, I look at books, they often have these sort of spot varnish, sort of like small areas of very highly polished, they've got laminates. And uh, so what do you think of the more lurid designs of, of books nowadays? Well, I, 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 I'm, a, I'm, I'm a sucker for uh, matte laminate, actually. I, I, I like matte laminate with a bit of spot varnish on. I think it looks great. Um, uh, and that's, it's an expensive thing to do. So, it is. so, yes. so the more that the publisher's doing that, the more money they're throwing at it and trying so they, to, try to make us want it. The more commercial the property is. Yeah. Um, so Julian, did you find that in the paperback, the mass market paperback sales, there was a, a trend in uh, book design? Um, <clears throat> pardon me. Well, there, there, yes, there, there, there would be. And I'm, I'm thinking back to my, <clears throat> my days of my youth when I worked for, um, Sphere Books and Sphere Books was the publisher of the Daniel Steele novels. Um, and they would come out, the Sphere, um, improved uh, on the, on the, um, jacket designs for the UK market, but they were all quite florid. They were because they were all romance stories. So they were always sort of, you never had to. You never had a picture of a, a face of anybody. It was always flowers in these wonderful swirls. And the, one would be one edition. One story would be a, a purple jacket and be purple flowers. The next would be cream with something else. And that was that was the Daniel Steele standard. And of course, he knocked these out um, by the score. So there was a whole collection of them. And then, of course, you've got the Mills and Boons, which is a good old classic pop boiler design. Oh, yes, that's a very <laughs> yeah. clear design. <laughs> Hi, Jules. Talking about uh, Hello, Mike. To- talking about <laughs> pot boilers. I-, I remember being at a conference in the states and, and a- an American publisher uh, who did those sort of florid um, uh, mass market books um, only in paperback. And he was talking about cover design, and uh, he gave this little lecture on something called Womjeps, uh, which is completely st- stuck in my mind. And a Womjep is a woman in jeopardy. Uh, and all the covers for women in jeopardy books had a sort of a, a stately home, a large house in the dark or the, the gathering gloom um, from a distance. But there would always be one light on in one of the windows. Right. And that, <laughs> and that apparently, the, the gloom was the jeopardy, but the one light gave a ray of hope. Ah, and uh, right. it's always stuck with me and it was a it was a very successful uh jacket design uh that really worked for that particular company fantastic yeah. well so the ray of hope in all sherlock's home books of course is sherlock holmes himself because he he always actually managed to get his man didn't he i don't think i know of a uh, of a story of his where no. he doesn't he doesn't achieve success 
No, he mm. uh, well, he's such a bright boy. He's never he's he's never going to uh, not solve the problem. As I understand, um, the latest story of Sherlock Holmes, uh, Sherlock Holmes and the wrong headphones, uh, uh, yes, has yes. been has been <laughs> has uh, has been uh, solved today. It so was Moriarty. He'd it, come Moriarty along and changed changed the headphones, the equipment and, in the studio without telling me. Oh, I think that is despicable. But all, there you are. He's always doing that sort of. <laughs> And, and stop press. You've heard it first on this programme. The rights have been snapped up by the Baker Street Press. <laughs> so m- moving swiftly on there. <laughs> We're going to talk about our favourite Sherlock Holmes story. So, Mike, what's your favourite? Uh, well, it, I, I, it's very boring, really. That I'm going to, I, I have to go for the hand of the That's not bills. boring at all. Well, it is probably the most well known, and it is, it is one of the full novels. I mean, there were four full novels that he did, uh, of which Hand of the Baskervilles is one. But I just love the uh, the missing uh, articles of clothing uh, uh, and the uh, and and the really um forbidding and foreboding um uh well, the atmosphere, land, of atmosphere. More, yeah. you know it's just it is just fantastic and and home suddenly turning up on the moors um uh, with watson not realizing it so is he a baddie or is he a goodie um but luckily he has his um he has his handgun he has his pistol with him and uh, it's uh, it's just a great book um, and i've got to say it's been um it's been so many adapt- ad- adapted to stage and television yeah. and, and film. Yeah. That, uh, you do have the images, as you're reading the book, the images of your favourite stage production or film just sort of comes through your mind. Mm. Yeah, no, ab- yeah. absolutely. And uh, and the idea of uh, of taking the wrong path over the great Grimp and Meyer uh, is, uh, is fantastic. I, I love it. It's such a great book. Absolutely. And Jules, what about you? Well, I have to say, I, it's a terrible thing. I, I'm with Mike. I must admit, The Hound of the Baskervilles is is my favourite. And because I think partly, as, as Mike says, is all of the, because there's so many different elements in there, is when Dr Mortimer comes uh, to Baker Street first and, and, sh- and we get the taste of Holmes um, doing his um, deduction because he can work out that he's got a dog because the, because his walking cane's been nibbled and, so, and all sorts of things. And I think it's great. And certainly for, for cinema and television, it works fantastically well as well. Um, but so you're going that, to talk about a different... Book, aren't we? Well, we are. So, I, 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 yes, we have got one, and it's, it, and it goes back where you are saying that Holmes gets his, gets his man, so to speak, but it's actually not quite the story you would normally associate with him. And there's a little bit for you okay. to start off. Right. The Adventure of the Sussex Vampire. Holmes had read carefully a note which the last post had brought him. Then, with a dry chuckle, which was his nearest approach to a laugh, he tossed it over to me. For a mixture of the modern and the medieval, of the practical and of the wildly fanciful, I think this is surely the limit, said he. What do you make of it, Watson? I read as follows. 46, Old Jury, November 19th, re Vampires. Sir, our client, Mr Robert Ferguson, of Ferguson and Muirhead, tea brokers of Mincing Lane, has made some inquiry from us in a communication of even date concerning vampires. As our firm specialises entirely upon the assessment of machinery, the matter hardly comes within our purview, and we have therefore recommended Mr Ferguson to call upon you and lay the matter before you. We have not forgotten your successful action in the case of Matilda Briggs. We are, sir, faithfully yours, Morrison, Morrison and Dodd, per E.J.C. 
"'Matilda Briggs was not the name of a young woman, Watson,' said Holmes in a reminiscent voice. "'It was a ship which is associated with the giant rat of Sumatra, "'a story for which the world is not yet prepared. "'But what do we know about vampires? "'Does it come within our purview, either? "'Anything is better than stagnation, "'but really we seem to have been switched on to a Grimm's fairy tale. "'Make a long arm, Watson, and see what V has to say.' I leaned back and took down the great index volume to which he referred. Holmes balanced it on his knee, and his eyes moved slowly and lovingly over the record of old cases mixed with the accumulated information of a lifetime. Voyage of the Gloria Scott, he said. That was a bad business. I have some recollection that you made a record of it, Watson, though I was unable to congratulate you upon the result. Victor Lynch, forger. Venomous lizard or giller? Remarkable case, that. Vittoria, the circus bell. Vanderbilt and the Yegman. Vipers. Vogier, the Hammersmith wonder. Hello, hello. Good old index. You can't beat it. Listen to this, Watson. Vampirism in Hungary. And again, vampires in Transylvania. He turned over the pages with eagerness, but after a short, intent perusal, he threw down the great book with a snarl of disappointment. Rubbish, Watson, rubbish! What have we to do with walking corpses who can only be laid in their graves by stakes driven through their hearts? It's pure lunacy! But surely, said I, the vampire was not necessarily a dead man. A living person might have the habit. I have read, for example, of the old sucking the blood of the young in order to retain their youth. Mm, you're right, Watson. It mentions the legend in one of these references. But are we to give serious attention to such things? This agency stands flat-footed upon the ground, and there it must remain. The world is big enough for us. No ghosts need apply. I fear that we cannot take Mr. Robert Ferguson very seriously. Mm, possibly this note may be from him and may throw some light upon what is worrying him. He took up a second letter, which had lain unnoticed upon the table, whilst he had been absorbed with the first. This he began to read with a smile of amusement upon his face, which gradually faded away into an expression of intense interest and concentration. When he had finished, he sat for some little time, lost in thought, with the letter dangling from his fingers. Finally, with a start, he aroused himself from his reverie. And thus opens the um, the curious case of The Adventure of the Sussex Vampire, which was first published in the general edition of the Strand magazine in 1924. Now, um, having sent um, his letter to Sherlock Holmes, uh, Mr. Robert Ferguson presents himself at 221B Baker Street the following morning. And during his interview, Ferguson tells Holmes and Watson that he's convinced that his second wife, who is Peruvian, is sucking the blood of their infant son. In addition to the infant in the household, Ferguson and has a 15-year-old son, Jack, um, from his first marriage, who is disabled after suffering an unfortunate accident. And though he can walk, it doesn't have full power in his limbs. Um, but he was unaccountably struck by his stepmother twice, uh, seemingly without reason, since the start of the blood-sucking incident. Now, uh, Mrs. Ferguson locks herself in the room after this, refusing to come out, and uh, will only allow her Peruvian maid Dolores access. Now, Holmes and Watson agree to go um, to with Ferguson to uh, visit his household in Sussex. Um, however, for Holmes, it's only a matter for him to observe and confirm what he's already deduced in the case, and it has nothing whatsoever to do with vampires. 
Now, on arrival at the house, Dolores, the maid, announces that her mistress is ill. Dr. Watson immediately offers assistance and finds uh, Mrs. Ferguson very agitated in her bedroom. And she declares that everything has been destroyed and that she would rather sacrifice herself than break her husband's heart. And she also pleads um, for her infant son to be returned to her, who'd been put in the care of the nurse since the incident. Meanwhile, Holmes is downstairs examining a collection of South American weapons which are on display and he in turn meets both children. Now, Watson notes that whilst Ferguson is doting on his younger son, Holmes is gazing out of the window, which puzzles him. Now is the time for the truth to come out, uh, much to Mrs. Ferguson's relief, for she knows that it must come from the lips from other than her own. Now, the culprit, this is the surprise, is none other than the 15-year-old Jack, who is immensely jealous of his half-brother and the attention lavished on him by his father. And Jack had been attempting to murder his little half-brother by shooting poison darts at him. And when his stepmother saw what had happened, stooped to suck the poison out of her baby son's neck. And it was that reason she struck Jack. And it was the poison she'd ingested which made her ill at the time of Holmes and Watson's arrival. So quite a different story from uh, from um, other types of baddies. Absolutely. I don't know which is more remarkable, the, uh, the, the half-brother for deciding to use poison darts for his little... <laughs> exactly. But obviously he was, he was disabled, he was doing it from... And the reason Holmes was, was looking out of the window, he was seeing the reflection of the, of the annoyance on Jack's oh. face, of, of the attention being lavished on his brother by his father. Fantastic. Great yeah. story. And not one that I particularly knew, so lovely no. to be reminded of that. <laughs> And that's in one of the collections because obviously most of the books are. It is. It's in the casebook of Sherlock. Ah, right. Okay. Yes. Casebook of Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Excellent. Right. We're coming to the end. So one more yep. thing I just wanted to talk about before we leave today is, of course, the Cooking Festival. And River Radio has teamed up with the Cooking Festival this year. So do take a look at the website and look at all the events on offer and which ones that appeal. And you might often see uh, a River Radio presenter uh, during some of the performances. And don't forget to book tickets as they are running out. There are over 40 events to amuse, entice and fascinate the entire family this year. Talks, walks, drama and comedy sit side by side with the famous Sculpture Garden at the Odney Club. Um, And of course, there is the spoken word section. And I just wanted to very quickly mention a couple of things I'm particularly interested in. Uh, first of all, Rob Castell, an evening with Rob Castell on Saturday the 7th of May at 7.30 at the Odney Club. Now, uh, Rob Castell is a local musician and songwriter. We've seen him at Norden Farm, been blown away by, by him. Uh, he's also at the top London uh, night spot Crazy Cock, if anyone has, knows about that. And he's been on E4 and BBC Radio 4 and lots of others. And he's got this sort of funky heel tapping uh, fun band uh, with him. So that will be great fun. Uh, it's of course Auntie's big birthday 100 years of the BBC on Thursday the 12th of May uh, and a creative writing shop on Sunday the 15th if any budding authors are out there so the Cookham Festival is between the 6th to the 22nd of May in Cookham Village and full details and you can book tickets directly from the website which is cookhamfestival.co.uk and all the information will be on there So, books we are recommending today. 
Uh, well, we've got Kane's Jawbone by Edward Powis Mathers, published by Unbound. We've got uh, Nine Books Within the Sherlock Holmes series, published by Baker Street Press. And then we have The Man Who Would Be Sherlock by Christopher Sandford, published by Thomas Dunn Books. And Arthur and George by Julian Barnes, published by Jonathan Cape. So remember, listening to River Radio and Turning Pages has never been easier. Now we're broadcasting on DAB. You can also listen to River Radio on almost any internet-connected device or smart speaker. And there's a host of great programmes you can listen to, both music and talk-focused. Turning Pages is on every Wednesday between 11 and 12 and repeated on Saturday afternoons between 2 and 3. And if you want to catch up on any of our past programmes you've missed, then you can listen again directly from our website, www.river.radio. And Turning Pages is also available as a podcast. Just search for Turning Pages on River Radio Podcast. Thank you for joining us. And if you do listen to our podcast, just like us, because it really helps. Thanks to the Little Bookshop, Cookham, and we look forward to joining us next week. Bye-bye.